Hello and welcome to Better Beings, a podcast bringing ideas for happier, more balanced and fulfilling lives. Better Beings brings together innovative and diverse thinkers to discuss the key challenges facing humanity from the worlds of business, creativity, spirituality and wider society. We believe that a more human approach will unlock the future we need. Kinder connection to ourselves and each other is the starting point. Better Beings is a home for diversity of thought and backgrounds and a safe space for authentic and challenging perspectives. Our guest today is Adam Lowenstein, a journalist, author and political commentator. To find out more about Adam and his work, please visit the show notes for further details. Everything else will come out in our conversation. I'm Joel Brevet and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Johnston. Okay, welcome, Adam Lowenstein. How are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and hoping we can have this conversation before the roofers for our neighbors show up and start going to town, literally. Oh, well, yeah. Not sure if, yeah, they're going to be a, a great conversation, uh, the, the roofers. So, yeah, let's see. Let's do our best to, uh, to get in before they get started. Yeah, while you were leading those breathing exercises before we started taping here. I was, I found a place of calm and also remembered that the roofers are coming. So it was both productive <laughs> and very soothing to start with that. Okay, great. Well, th- where, where in the world are these roofers for our listeners, Adam? They are in Washington, D.C., right near Rock Creek Park, for those who are familiar with the Washington, D.C. area, just this amazing national park in the heart of the capital of the United States. And yeah, very good, very good. So you're you're back in Washington D.C. Adam and I met uh, a while ago, and li- our lives have been quite interesting since then, haven't they? Do you want to tell people just a little bit about your journey from Washington to meeting in London, bit of New York? bit of that word again davos joel's favorite um joel, joel oh, loves here, davos here and um and then sort of leading to where you are today just to just to sort of i don't know go go wherever you like with that but tell, tell yeah us, tell so us what's, what's helped you to arrive to what back in washington with your roofers impending roofers yeah washington dc is an interesting place and not just because it's the capital but because or related to the fact that it's the the capital that attracts so much money and people who are seeking power and proximity to power. And I first moved to DC in at the end of 2009, uh, beginning of the Obama era. And I didn't come for power, but I came to work in politics, like a lot of people who come here. Um, and I stayed on Capitol Hill, working in politics for a while. Uh, left a couple of times and, and always came back to D.C. And I'll get back to that in a second. But I think the the Washington, D.C. I've gotten to know since I last moved back here in the summer of 2021 is much more a, a community, a place of people who are who have roots or are setting down roots here, as opposed to the, the transient, uh, often power-seeking um, communities 
and circles that I was a part of when I first moved here, of people who are here for politics, but they keep their residency in whatever state, whatever part of the country they're from. So they're they're here, but they're not really here. And since I've been back, I've, you know, part of it is my partner and I buying a house. Part of it is um, some other side hustles that I'm sure we'll we'll get into later that I've been working on here in DC. But I moved here for the the same reason a lot of people do to work in politics and and have stayed because it's become home and has very little to do with politics in a in a way that I think has been a very positive shift for me. So long story short, spent about eight years in DC um, with one jaunt home to Colorado, which I wrote about extensively in my book, Reframe the Day, for those who are interested in hearing more about why I moved to Colorado and why or for whom I moved back and moved to the UK in the fall of, uh, excuse me, the autumn of 2017 (laughs) and spent three and a half years, a year in Oxford and then two and a half years in London, uh, working with my good friend, former esteemed colleague, Michael Johnston. And let's see, ended up in North London by no small part due to Michael's lobbying for, uh, for NW1 and moved <laughs> back to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 21 um, only because I wanted to, to, well, part of it was to get closer to family. Um, and that was really important, especially during COVID. But a big part of it, too, was the visa that my partner and I were on was tied to my job in, in big consulting world. And I wanted to leave that and try some, some other, uh, more unstable lines of work like freelance journalism. So we'll get into that too. But I think that's the, I think that's the trajectory. I skipped the Davos part. For the best, I think on this occasion. I think so too. (laughs) I wish more people would skip the Davos part. Well, maybe we did listen to some good hip hop in Davos there, didn't we? That's true. And uh, had some great, some great sledding and some fantastic observing of uh, what those spaces can do to people. I think back to that experience, actually, more than I would like because of how telling it was to see, you know, without going into too many details, all these CEOs and other uh, people of influence and aspiring people of influence interact with one another with no filters and seeing how they are very much just like everybody else, just trying to impress their peers and jockeying for status and influence and wanting their jokes to land. And they may have access to more resources and have more people working for them than everybody else, but they are, uh, you know, just as insecure and uncomfortable as all of us, if not a little bit more so in some cases. (laughs) <laughs> no wonder you were right at home there then MJ <laughs> yeah cheers thanks for that <laughs> it's, yeah I mean it, it, this conversation is going to go in all kinds of fun directions and, and your first book is um, focuses on your personal journey to, to, to a large extent reframe the day um, also brings in some thoughts around and, and some real science around how to I guess be be better, live better, work better. So we'd love to get into some of that. But seeing as you mentioned the the CEOs, I guess yeah. Do you, do you want to share with us a little bit about where you've got to since you left 
the big four consulting world and I guess what what changed in your mind and your perception of what it is to be in that world of power and why you why you're focusing on the issues you are now could go in a lot of different directions here I think the mm. without without speaking in a monologue for the next 25 minutes and <laughs> trying to figure out how I I got here I think the I think the thread that runs through my career not really intentionally at least until the last couple of years is proximity to power and influence and that comes from working on Capitol Hill being involved in politics and I'm not talking always national or global power power exists at many different levels um, but I think the you know going from Capitol Hill and then finding myself working for our our former employer in a role that I didn't really know much about when I signed up for it in part because of all the you know consulting and corporate speak that job postings are full of, but also because it evolved and it was kind of a strange position and a strange little team that we were a part of in this big organization and um, didn't it, didn't know that that's, you know, working on for, I guess, for some context for listeners, what we were working on was this, was research about this whole idea of purpose-driven business, what is now called in, you know, depending on who you talk to, ESG or sustainability or corporate purpose or stakeholder capitalism, the idea that businesses are, you know, if you're putting it appropriately, that businesses can do more to take care of the people and the communities that they impact. If you get carried away with the rhetoric, as a lot of CEOs and, and pundits and commentators do, the idea that businesses are going to save the world because governments have failed. And that's what we were researching and what we were convening. And Coming from eight years in government, I was very susceptible to the idea and responsive to the idea that businesses needed to save the world because governments had failed to do so. Businesses needed to solve climate change and take care of inequality and solve, you know, quote unquote, solve education and homelessness and racism and all forms of injustice because governments had failed to do so. So I was very susceptible. I was primed to uh, to think that business had to step in because governments had failed. And over the three and a half years that I was working in this role and seeing how this big corporation that we were a part of operated, I became less and less convinced that it was that simple. And it seemed to me a much more self-serving argument for corporations and their executives to be proclaiming themselves to be the solution to the problems that in many cases they have contributed to, if not created directly. And so my journey is, has been, again, not really intentionally at all, but the thread that I can connect it all with in hindsight is working in government, working in a big corporation, in both cases, being close to power and seeing what it does to people, not being powerful myself, not even close to it, but seeing people who have been touched by influence and money and power and being very, very, ultimately very skeptical that 
the the things they tell themselves and the things we we like to think that they're going to do are going to save us and it's not to say that you know the future is bleak and we should all be depressed because nothing good is ever going to happen it's actually quite the opposite it's a just a deep skepticism of what power does to people and so the book that i'm working on now is a has evolved and Michael, you know this because we've we've talked about this at length, many different iterations of this book, but where it's at right now and where I think it will stay is an exploration of the role of American CEOs of American companies in politics and public policy and global policymaking and how not companies broadly, but CEOs specifically have not rigged the rules, but had a lot of influence in how uh, legal precedents are set and how tax policy is written or not written, how legislation is done, how regulations move forward or don't, and have built a system that serves them as individuals above most other people. And how, and you know, we've talked about this before, I'm obsessed with this difference between individual intentions and system, sy- systemic there we go, systemic and structural outcomes and how many of these CEOs are not quote unquote bad people. Most of the employees in these large organizations are not, you know, what we would think of as bad people. Things would be so much easier if solving global challenges was just a question of getting rid of bad people and replacing them with good ones. The reason these things are so complicated is because most people are generally good and trying to do the right thing but the incentives that they respond to, the structures that they operate in are so deeply flawed and entrenched. And so this book is trying to, I guess in some ways, make sense of the last 12 years of my career, last more than that, and understand the role of the chief executive in in American life over the last 30 or 40 years. So... That was a long and winding answer, but I, compared to the, the direction I could have gone in, it was actually quite concise. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you did touch on some really kind of key things there because I think a question I wanted to ask you was, do you feel that when you arrived, you were kind of still very much in a, an, an accomplice mindset and you've now, you're almost like Achilles at the, at the gates of Troy <laughs> on the... <laughs> on the outside, like recognizing that this uh, CEO city needs to be sacked. I think the the notion of being an accomplice, I have seen more in hindsight than at the time, although I definitely felt it when I was working in the corporate world and feeling like the things I was writing and the the messages that I was helping this huge organization and its executives um, craft and and put out in the world or not put out in the world, but work on putting out into the world uh, were, were only perpetuating things that I, and actually many of these same executives said they were opposed to, um, you know, statements about anti-racism and injustice in the summer of 2020 or statements about climate change at any point. Um, rhetoric and, and articles about climate change at any point while they were still taking business from and doing business with oil and gas producers, um, to name just a couple examples. So I think 
the way I have come to think about it is that it's not as I don't see what I'm doing now, which which I guess I haven't said explicitly besides working on this book is just, you know, other than that, freelance journalism, investigative journalism, looking at corporate power and how it manifests today. Um, and how I see that is, is not really a trying to redeem myself for my past work, although deep down there might be an element of that, mm-hmm. but it's more that I've had the opportunity to be close to a lot of American, not a lot, and a number of American politicians and be close to a number of CEOs. And I have seen how they operate in public and behind closed doors. And because I've had the opportunity to be up close with these people and see how these systems work, I have seen a little bit behind the curtain. And there's there's nothing there that the average ordinary person who's not a CEO or not an elected official is not dealing with in their own lives. There's no sort of... Um, you know, secret formula for achieving power. There's, there's no one. It's not to say that people don't work hard and don't achieve positions of influence because they work hard and are, are smart and, you know, do the right things or play the game well. Cause there's, there's definitely an element of, of talent and hard work and merit in all of it, but there's also a huge element of luck and fortune and happenstance. And I think a lot of what my, writing has tried to do is reveal that there is there is and this is was a previous title of of the book that I'm working on now that there is less than meets the eye to what corporations are proclaiming or what politicians are proclaiming and it doesn't mean there's nothing there but it means that we should be inherently a little bit skeptical about the promises that they make and I think the what I try to do is use the fact that I've been fortunate enough to be in all of these different roles and get to know all of these different people and to, and to not need to seek the approval of a CEO or a a politician who I used to work for. Um, You know, I have the, the experience, but also the, you know, the financial stability to start, you know, poking at these people and saying, not again, not that they're bad people, but that the way they present themselves is a little bit more, complicated and nuanced and less secret and less uh what's the word i'm looking for here less um there's nothing that they're doing that everybody else is not capable of doing and i think that's kind of what i'm trying to convey in a lot of my writing now you know i've seen what's on the other side and they're just people i think that's probably it That's quite, uh, yeah, quite, quite interesting because I think from the outside, sometimes it can be easy to, to think that there are some kinds of like nefarious behaviors that are above and beyond what, like, you know, normal people would do in their, uh, attempts at influence or power, or as you said at the beginning, like getting their joke to land, um, but I, th- I suppose to some extent it does give maybe uh, a glimmer of hope that uh, behind these 
corridors of power and these big machines of influence that they are people like you and I and like everybody else. Yeah. And I think you touch on a very important point, which is that there are indeed malicious actors in positions of power and aspiring to positions of power. We've probably seen more examples of that, um, you know, in, in America, in the UK, and a lot of countries over the last five to 10 years than we had previously. There are, there are people who are not, who are not conspiring is too strong of a word, but there are people who don't have good intentions and who are trying to manipulate and trying to take advantage of other people and who are saying all these really hollow things because they are genuine uh, fraudsters to use a, a lighter term than I would normally use. But mm-hmm. most people are not that. And I think that's, there's a big distinction there to be aware of the, you know, the true sociopaths who do have a way of working their way into executive leadership and into political office, but that most and, people and you've are probably not. met. You've probably met a couple of those as well along the way. I think we've all encountered so, a few in our in our <laughs> journeys, in part because, and this is probably not going to come up in the book, uh, we'll see, but I am very interested in the, the way that corporate structures reward what some people would call antisocial behavior or sociopathic behavior and narcissistic behavior, the sort of self-promotional managing upward trampling on colleagues to to get promoted and get into these more senior level roles a lot of our big organizations and institutions and particularly in the corporate world reward that type of behavior and so in some ways it's kind of a self-selecting thing like if you stick around long enough the way to advance and get to the top can be is not always but sometimes is a you know it it requires the type of behavior that one would hope we would never exhibit to our friends and family members and our neighbors. And so I am interested in that, how there's a little bit of self-selection and that's obviously true in politics as well. But I think most people are not like that and are instead find themselves in these organizations, uh, public or private or otherwise. And again, have good intentions and are quote unquote good people, but are trapped in these bigger systems. I, I was just, um, just to pick up on the, I mean, so this podcast is all about being right. We, we are human beings after all. And if you follow the thesis that most people are good, there are some bad actors, um, and some people with sort of genuinely nefarious motivations, some sociopaths, some psychopaths, but mostly people are good. What is it, do you think, that... What is it about these organisations that drives the kind of behaviours that you talked about, the sort of... that that, that create cultures of fear um, and control and power imbalance what do you think i mean that's a fairly big question but yeah, what, <laughs> what, 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 what what do you think is at the heart of this why why do people why are people being the way they are inside these organizations 
I don't know if I have a good answer to that in part because like you said, that's a pretty big, pretty big question. Mm. I would say that let me narrow it down a little bit to a topic that you and I have talked about, Michael, and worked on, and that is relevant to the the research that I'm doing right now, which is this whole idea of purpose-driven business and the idea that companies, let's focus specifically on how companies are attracting and retaining employees with promises that if you come and work at Facebook or Microsoft or Pepsi, you know, name the global organization um, or a professional services firm or a law firm, you know, whatever, some big global organization or a small one that if you come and work here, you will not just be helping us and our partners or in the case of public companies, our shareholders and our executives make money, but you'll be fill in the blank, saving the world, protecting the climate, helping the community. And it's not to say that those are not things that do that you can do through these organizations. But the thing that I think is can be really insidious about these promises is that none of them, or in most cases, I don't want to make a blanket statement. In many cases, these promises are just a rhetorical tool for attracting and retaining employees. It's It doesn't change how the business operates. And if your purpose of your organization is to, you know, protect the planet and you speak up because you don't think that that organization should also be doing business with ExxonMobil or Chevron or BP because that is not only bad for the planet but goes against the stated values of the company, how does that organization respond? They might say, yes, you're right, we're going to stop doing business with them, but they're more likely to push you to the side or give you the the type of answer that, you know, we have both, Michael, uh, heard in various, uh, not just our former organization, but just in, you know, being in this space of trying to make corporations a little bit more human of we can do more good by, by working with big oil and fossil fuels than we can by dropping them. And that may be true, but that's also very self-serving. So what you end up from the employee perspective is you end up being subjected to this really intense, what our friend Charlotte has described as corporate gaslighting, where they are telling you one thing, you know very, very clearly and objectively that what they're telling you is not true or not the whole story. And yet everyone around you, because they're worried about their jobs or they want to advance in the company or they want to get promoted, all these very basic, understandable um, human incentives and motivations. No one else is is saying it out loud. And so if you don't agree with, or if, if you don't find authenticity in, in what you're being told in your organization, you can end up feeling very, very isolated. And I think there is, I think one of the loneliest, I don't know this from experience, but I think one of the loneliest positions one can be in in an organization is to be a whistleblower. And that could be like someone who is actually uh, deserving of whistleblower protections, who is calling out fraud and abuse or something like that. Or it could just be someone who goes against the what the group, whether it's your team or the company as a whole, has decided is true. 
it is very lonely to to not be enthusiastic about what the team is doing. And that's even more so when, you know, in Western capitalism, when we have made what you do at your work, at your place of employment to be your purpose in life and your identity. And if those, if your identity is your organization, which again is the default way of operating these days in so many organizations, so many industries, then if you're subjected to gaslighting and people telling you all is well, everything is great, this is the best team ever, when you feel really uncertain about that, then it's a very, very isolating and demoralizing thing. And you start to question your own, um, you know, if what you're seeing with your own eyes and hearing with your own ears is even true. And I'm probably doing a little bit of projecting here, but also I think I've talked to enough people who have been through similar types of things that I think I can, I feel pretty confident saying that this is not just my own experience. And again, none of this has anything to do with, with bad people or good people. This has everything to do with incentives and structures and just the way that human beings operate in these large organizations. And so I think the, it is instructive to think about the, the person or the people who question and doubt what they're being heard and what they're being told. And I think in a lot of ways, some of the journalism that I do now is trying to give voice to those people. And I don't know if I would have, that's not entirely it. I think there's a lot more to it than that, but that is one of the the places that if you are, if you happen to work for a powerful enough organization or a large enough and influential enough organization, and you have those doubts, sometimes the media is one of the few places where you can, you can surface those. And it's, so that's not the whole reason I'm, I'm in this, this industry now of, of media and journalism, but I think that might be part of it. So I don't know if I answered your question. We've gone a long I mean, way since you asked it. I mean, Mike, I mean, I, to, for me, thinking even about some of the things that Adam just said to answer your question, reminds me of an interview that I saw uh, maybe a year ago now or maybe less with uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, where he basically quite bluntly said that ultimately we're here for a fiduciary duty. All the rest of the stuff is fluff. Like, And if that is the incentive system, as Adam is kind of alluding to, that it's always the bottom line. Everything from ESG to like human rights to everything are just trinkets that kind of get in the way of a system that is about who can capitalize the quickest and, and the hardest. And so until that incentive system changes, ultimately all of this kind of conversation is uh, like, yeah, uh, to use a, a non-vegan turn of phrase for me, lipstick on a pig. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty illustrative, I guess, to see what happens during financial crises and economic downturns right because someone once used a phrase um which i borrow from time to time this stuff is often top of the um priority list bottom of the to-do list so these guys are standing and they are mostly guys i don't want to hate on the old white guys they're just they're just they're just people uh, humans sort of products of their environment as we all are but it, it, it surprises me in a world of 
kind of hard-nosed, straight-talking capitalism that these guys can use all the words around climate, human rights, purpose, ESG at the most kind of prestigious events and forums, giving so much prominence to these issues that it would make you think that they were genuinely top of the to-do list. Um, And then economic downturns come and those teams are often the first to to go. Um, And those quote-unquote priorities fall away very quickly. So that probably tells you a fair bit. Um, Then having said that, I, I do genuinely think that these leaders recognise in most cases that, that, that something seriously needs to be done about the issues they're talking about. And yet short-term profit is, is all. Is it, do yeah. you think it's the short-term profit? Is, is that, is that ultimately, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's probably a silly, silly thing to say, is it? But it seems to me that until a longer term approach is taken and people are genuinely empowered to take decisions for the longer term to invest for the longer term. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's all about keeping the lights on and growth next month, isn't it? Yeah, I I would say so. But I, th- I would say though, also that uh, on our conversation of being, we're getting into the the deep, dark, and uh, dystopian. So, <laughs> I would, I, oh, yeah. I would, where, happy to go there. I would, good, yeah. <laughs> I would, I would really like to. I mean, keeping it slightly on that, but I would like to segue to asking Adam uh, the term "memento mori." Uh, you know this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could tell us and our audience what this means to you and how you apply it, both personally and professionally. So. You said you didn't want to get too dark and dystopian. And then (laughs) we're getting right into Memento Mori, which is uh, an old, like uh, going back to the Stoic philosophers in in BC times and and Mm -hmm. early AD times, an old uh, saying that is essentially, you know, remember that you will die. And it is something that I wrote about in Reframe the Day and that I think about a lot right now, and I'll get into that in a second, but haven't been reading as much about and researching as much recently. And maybe this is actually a great meta memento mori moment talking about the phrase memento mori because it is important to keep this stuff top of mind. And it the the what it has become, and as has always been, but particularly in the kind of the self-improvement productivity world over the last, I don't know, five years, 10 years, 20 years is a reminder, a practice of remembering that life is fleeting and impermanent and not guaranteed and that you will eventually die and everyone will eventually die and it could happen tomorrow. It could happen this evening and you're not going to be ready for it. It's not going to be like you will die only after you've achieved everything you wanted to achieve and gotten all of your business in order and said everything you wanted to say to the people you care about. It is often entirely out of one's control when that happens and how it happens and how quickly it happens. And so 
it is a practice of remembering that and using that to to make decisions about how you want to spend your time and who you want to spend your time with. And I won't try to tie it into what we were talking about before. I think I'll, I'll follow your lead, Joel, and just stay on the, you know, the personal being part here. And I think the way this is going to sound dark, but I think this is the whole practice sounds very dark and depressing, but it, it can be very, enlivening it can be very mm -hmm. inspiring to be thinking about death all the time because it reminds you it brings you into the present it reminds you what is important and what is less important and what i'm going to say is very dark which is that i think about death all the time and it's not because i'm you know huddled in this dark room with my headphones on staring at the screen like i am right now but it's because <laughs> I think it's for whatever reason, and maybe it's the, you know, a quote unquote successful practice, or maybe it's just some things I need to unpack in my own life and trajectory. But I think about death all the time in a way that I think has really helped me spend more time. Doesn't mean I'm not stressed all the time constantly. It doesn't mean I'm not always feeling like I'm running out of time and that's causing me aggravation and irritation and doesn't mean that I am not frustrated all the time because all those things are definitely true. Um, it's hard to to even dabble in reading the news or just try to, you know, survive, let alone thrive in a really complicated time without feeling all of those things all the time like we all are. But it has helped me, I think, nudge my decisions in a healthier and more fulfilling direction of and it's not just this practice it's um you know finding a person who i want to spend a lot of my life with it's about uh the the dog who my partner and i adopted a couple of years ago because she can only like dogs only think about the present moment and she has dragged me into the present time and time again and so there's a lot of things that I think have contributed to making some decisions where I feel very much more content in my life than I have in past chapters. And a lot of that is good fortune and privilege. And so that's, it's not just about thinking about death. It's, it's also a lot of um, circumstantial things that I had no control over that have, have put me in a very uh, privileged and content position. But at the margins, thinking about this reminder, um, you know, it helps me, do I stay late? Do I stay up late and send emails or do I go walk the dog? Do I go see my grandparents? Like it's those types of decisions that are small in the moment. And yet chances are, if I stay late and do emails this time, I can go see my grandparents tomorrow. But over time, making that decision to spend time with people you care about and do things that bring you joy and fulfillment, choosing that more often than not, which these little practices can help you with. These are the types of practices that I wrote about and reframe the day. Um, to me, the net effect has been really positive. Mm -hmm. And even though I might feel like I'm not getting as much work done, like I, I'm not publishing right now as many stories as I would like to, I'm not as far along in the book as I would like to be. And that causes me endless stress and anxiety. And yet when I think about the things I'm spending my time on instead of, you know, banging my head against the keyboard, 
working on this book or scrolling through Twitter to try to find editors to pitch stories to, when I the things I'm spending my time on taking the dog into the park or, you know, going to work a couple days a week in this the running store in DC that I work at, these are things that are incredibly fulfilling and I wouldn't when I think about where time for more work would come from, I can't find things that I am willing to stop doing mm-hmm. to do more work. And I think that is a result of, in some ways, thinking about death all the time and trying to remind myself that at the end of the day, yes, I hope the work I do is meaningful and, and helps people, but it's not going to be the emails that I regret at the end of the day, it's not going to be the work that I didn't do. It's, it's going to be the walks I didn't take in the park with the dog and with my partner. It's going to be the run I didn't go on. It's going to be the time I didn't spend with family members. Like that's the, I suspect that that would be the stuff that I would think about. So that is what this practice is about. And it is a really powerful antidote to that kind of dark and dystopian and really depressing stuff that I write about a lot. And I will say yeah. writing Reframe the Day, it was a lot more fulfilling than writing uh, about Larry Fink and BlackRock. Although I think <laughs> I'm glad I'm writing about this other stuff. It's important. Um, I feel like it's necessary, but it sure is not as inspiring as uh, no, no, writing no, about sure. practices for fulfillment. <laughs> no, for sure. I think, uh, I, I mean, I've been reading uh, one of your uh, essays. I think something you'd written for the the Long Now Foundation uh, and I think what you even then mentioned there about death, because I think about death all the time too. And I think because I've now taken on my view of life to be more cyclical rather than linear, I see death always as then an opportunity. And I kind of am quite obsessed with walking in nature and studying decay, because often what you will mm. see is from, from decay, so much new life propagates you'll see a stump mm-hmm. of a tree that's been cut and you will see new plants or even a new thin root of that same tree growing out of that old stump. And it's just kind of that very visceral and physical reminder that life is cyclical, that even in like, you know, death as we see it, which ultimately I think is ego death because, you know, as a collective, we continue. And so our, our death is kind of by the by in the, in the human story we are like, you know, little finite games in the infinite game. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, there has been a, a for me, I, 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 the reason why I brought it up and didn't actually think of it as being dystopian until you mentioned it was because mm-hmm. I kind of see bringing uh, death or like, you know, the circle of life to the forefront of our thinking has been something that's quite refreshing. And I think I remember that some of the reason or what you'd been writing about in that essay was uh, pertaining to we a lot of entertainment these days is based on this kind of uh, post-apocalyptic futures uh, and different kind of like takes on it. But I think that what you had presented was an idea that where some people can look at that kind of material and see it as it feels like the end of hope. I think what you'd framed was that it can be the beginning of hope instead, because it can be like, how do we create new narratives out of it? It makes me think of that famous uh, quote that people can far easier imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Uh, And Mm -hmm. 
And this makes me think to myself, like, what do we need to do or what do you do to imagine a new system? Or or how do you, with everything that you've seen, like, you know, the the the, the kind of uh, coddling to power and, uh, in essence, a lot of the insidious parts of an old system, what do you see in your personal life or as a way that we can, I suppose, like, yeah, move forward and step forward with, with true purpose out outside of some of these old structures. I will say the phrase you mentioned about ego death, the, the practice of memento mori is so tied up in the ego and in trying to, because what could be more, uh, more arrogant than assuming that we will get to choose when we, when we go and when our friends and our loved ones go like that is sort of the height of um, it's not, not malicious arrogance. It's just, it's something that most of us do. I definitely do assume that I will be in control of uh, when I get to, you know, say my farewells and when I get to get my business in order before I, before I go. So that's, there's the ego is intimately tied up in this whole practice Um, Mm -hmm. on the long now piece for, for listeners. This was a essay I wrote, I think about a year ago, but I've been thinking about it for a while. That was basically tying together a bunch of different books that I had read. I think I mentioned like 10 or 15 books in that piece that are all about the end of the world in various guises. It could be a pandemic. And my my obsession is probably not too strong of a word with these with books about the end of the world came from no coincidence, I'm sure that I started reading these books during the early months of COVID, but came from reading these, what I call flu fiction, um, various influenza strains that bring about the end of the world and how easily that can happen. Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven was saw a huge, massive spike in sales in the early months of COVID, even though it came out in 2014. And people were trying to figure out why, why is a book about a flu pandemic becoming a bestseller once again? during the early months of this, you know, unknown, you know, what we were then calling coronavirus. And in part, I try to argue in that story and I'm convinced that it's because books like that allow us to, and I I quote somebody in the story who uses this phrase, but allow us to basically peek over the edge of what happens if things get really, really bad and how easily it can go from the way things are to just total collapse. And just like the individual practice of memento mori, where you think about your own death, not as a depressing thing, but as a reminder to live your life as best as you can, the way you want to um, wreck to me, these books are kind of a memento mori for civilization, for society as we know it. And it could be a book about an influenza strain. It could be a book about you know, there's a whole genre of cli-fi or climate fiction, which tries to imagine how climate change will continue to impact humanity. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future is was a bestseller a couple of years ago, and it is a really, unlike a lot of sci-fi, it's very much focused on the near term. It's not the year 3000 in space, it's the year 2030 in on planet earth and mm-hmm. by th- by going into the worlds that these writers create um 
it can let us, it can shake us out of our complacency and shake us out of our assumption that we will always have time to fix it. And so let's just keep doing what we're doing now and we'll deal with it later, whether it is some baggage in our own personal life or our, you know, society not tackling the climate crisis and everything in between. So I think about these things as kind of a, a memento mori for society, for civilization, for things that are important to us as a, as a collective. That's interesting. I mean, one of the books that you didn't mention there, but uh, a book the, that I read recently, actually one of the first novels I've read in a while was The Parable of the Sower from uh, Octavia Butler, because that one yes. actually starts, she wrote that in 93, but actually begins in 2024. So it's literally around it's the so corner. So prescient. It really is, because I think what I loved most about the protagonist, uh, like Lauren is her name, uh, her story was, and I suppose what I was maybe driving at a little bit of my question to you was, she recognised that the hope that was going to like lead her and the community that she ends up founding around her forward was the formation of ultimately a new religion, a new approach to what God is, a new approach to what community is. And so, I mean, yeah, to kind of bring it back to the present day and a bit of your work, and I'll kind of try and wrap up with this question because we're kind of coming to the end, is I know that you've obviously been working a lot with like big D democracy, and I'm assuming uh, in America you are, I mean, my guess is a Democrat, but I just wonder what you think is the future for big D democracy and then for actual democracy as a collective movement uh, and how we as individuals can actually enact some form of like, you know, kind of de democratic movement to, to change the world for ourselves. Adam's tea party, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me tell you what I see on my QAnon forums. And so <laughs> where do we go for pizza? <laughs> That's right around the corner from me. It's I like, thought so. of course yeah, it is. Comet pizza is a, uh, it's about a five minute drive from here. So right next to the bookstore that I spend way too much money at. So I'm going to say for that question, which is the question of our time, I think. I have a story that's going to publish in the, hopefully the next week or two, although I've been saying that for many weeks, that is a is a book review that looks at the question of democracy from another angle, which is not assuming that we all share the collective end goal that we think we do of building more democratic and inclusive societies. And it's very clear, you know, that that has never been the goal of a, of a lot of people and a lot of institutions and a lot of groups for throughout history. But what this, this review tries to unpack is a tension between capitalism and democracy and trying to highlight the people and forces who are more interested in preserving capitalism, the global movement of money, than they are in preserving democracy, you know, the citizen participation and inclusiveness and, um, you know, the idea of self-determination or self-government. So there's, there, there are a lot of threats to democracy right now. And I will just say that I don't think it does anyone a service to pretend that those threats aren't real. And if people want to get into that more I've written about this a lot, um, but I want to end on a on a more uplifting note, which is to say that um, I will include a book recommendation here as well. 
which is a book that was published in, I think in October, some point in the last, the end of last year by Michael, by our friend Anand Giridardas, and it's called The Persuaders, and it's a little bit America-centric, so some of your um, non-American listeners will have to forgive that, but it is essentially a series of profiles of activists and organizers and agitators who are doing what I think of and what he portrays as the hard work of democracy, which is not just protesting and marching and signing letters and sending emails and voting, although those things are all absolutely critical and not available to everybody, but it is persuading people. It is trying to rediscover how not to give up on people and how to build bigger, more inclusive movements. And the thing that I found most powerful about that book, two things. One is just inspiration that these people are doing this really hard, thankless work of organizing. And, you know, for every successful protest or successful campaign, whether it's to pressure Congress in America or a political body elsewhere, or to pressure a corporation to stop doing business or an investor to stop investing with, um, you know, a, a malicious entity, um, a lot of this stuff happens behind the scenes and it happens quietly and thanklessly. And so I've, the persuaders are just a really moving and inspiring look at people who are quietly doing this work. The second thing that I've found and perhaps even more uh, powerful for me in this book was just a reminder that the people who are doing the work are also struggling with the same things that everybody else is. The same tension between when do you call somebody out and when do you try to bring them into your movement? And the same questions that are riling and roiling our politics in a lot of places right now, you know, just because we're reading the news and being frustrated and, and struggling with these things ourselves doesn't mean that the people who are in the mix, who are in the fight every day are not struggling with that too. So there's a sense of solidarity and hopefulness that I got from this book that I, I would commend to all listeners, not to read it as a, as a manual for how to save democracy, but a, as a reminder of why we fight for it and a reminder that there are lots of really good, hardworking people with their heads down doing this work right now. And if that doesn't give you faith that the the system is, uh, the democratic system that is, is, is worth saving and can be saved, then, um, you know, I'm not sure what can. Go look at a tree stump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will say, and I know we need to wrap up, but I I did my first ultra marathon a couple weeks ago and in most of it was through the trails of Mendocino, California. And it was all of these huge redwoods, these huge trees, clearly, you know, hundreds of years old in some cases, they'd all been, a lot of them at least had all these um, fire scars and charred bark on the outside um, from fires years ago. And that they're still standing. They are built to withstand the fires. And so as best as I could focus after five or six hours of being on my feet and running, I was just like looking around, trying not to trip over these huge roots from these massive trees. And it was a, when you were talking about the, you know, the decay that becomes life of a, of a tree, 
like that's that's some pretty pretty powerful stuff to just go mm-hmm. out and surround yourself with with nature it a uh, pretty powerful pretty powerful tonic yeah and remembering that we are nature too ultimately all the rest of this stuff is this abstraction yeah very much so all right, Mike, I know you've got some questions. Yeah. Go on, go for it. No, I don't, I don't you know. I mean, the, the questions normally that we, we like to wrap with three questions. One of them is, what book would you recommend? You've done that one. Um, I can do more. The, n- well, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've he's done enough of you. <laughs> done enough books. Um, we like to ask people um, what's giving you hope as well. And we'll maybe come back to that one just to just to, to, just to round us off but I've, i mean i think you've, you've you've landed some hope as well um talking about death and and flipping that into <laughs> in flipping flipping that into into some positive well actually if we are going to be if we are going to die at some point we may as well do something positive right might um, as well I, live. I like that might as well live might as well be that's, that's um sound bite. What what about the what about the uh, just a, a nice one? I'm, I know we're all into into our music, the three of us, as is everyone. I mean, talk about being right. Music is something that unifies and brings us to life. What are you listening to at the moment? Music wise, still on that two thousands nineties rap, for sure. <laughs> I don't know any music that's been released in the last fifteen years, probably. <laughs> So two things. One, listening to a lot of Lupe Fiasco, in part because it takes me back to the early 2000s, early mid-2000s. But I've also been trying to listen to nothing in headphones a lot over the last year. For me, podcasts had turned into a a to-do list item, something I was just, I was always playing catch-up on and I started to just not put anything in my headphones whenever I had a spare moment. And I will often go out and run for two or three hours without, ideally without taking my phone, but if so, without putting anything in my ears, maybe for a half hour in the middle, just to break things up a bit, no podcast, no music. And it has really helped me get into, I can do some great thinking that way without anything in my, in my ears, but there's some sort of headspace that I can get into after a couple hours of no information input other than what's in my surroundings and to what we were talking about before. Ideally, those surroundings are in nature, but it's amazing what you start to observe, where your brain starts to go when you just let it be for a couple of hours. And so for me, I've been trying not to to overload my my ears and my brain with listening to things. And that's been pretty liberating actually great answer but quite but quite but quite contrarian wasn't it really like what, what are you listening what are you listening to nothing <laughs> a bit of being in there no that's good that, no, last great. one then yeah. last one then um what's giving you hope i think we've sort of brought a lot of hope to listeners here um maybe just being I hope so is the thing that gives us hope anything in particular that's kind of in in amongst you sort of reading about ceos and power and how corrosive that can be (laughs) yeah i have to find stuff to balance that out i would say two things one is and i've referenced this a little bit in our conversation i about a year ago i started working a couple days a week 
at a running store here in Washington, D.C., local store, just five stores in the area. And I just go there and chat with my coworkers and chat with customers who come in and get them fitted for running shoes and talk to them about running. And most of them are like me, like very recreational runners. They're not setting any records. They're just sort of plodding along a couple of days a week. And one thing that gives me hope is the, I would, one thing that gives me hope is people who come in and they're, they're on their own journey and they are doing something that makes them very uncomfortable. And it might be training for their first 5k. It might be training for their first marathon, whatever it is, they are on their journey and they are taking steps to move themselves, taking steps literally and figuratively to move themselves toward this goal that they have for whatever reason. Maybe they want to get in better shape. Maybe they, someone signed them up for a half marathon, so they need to start running. Whatever the reason is, they are getting after it and not in a capitalism sort of way where, you know, getting after it, hustle culture is all that matters, but they, they've set a goal and they are proceeding a pace. And I find some of those interactions, they give me a lot of hope because it is a reminder that on all the chaos of work and life and politics and society and climate change and collapse and all the depressing stuff we talked about, that people are just, they've got their own lives and they're, they're living them and they're trying to better themselves and better them circumstances. And I don't know, I find that that gives me a lot of hope. And then the other thing is just the ordinariness of this is related to that too the ordinariness of uh of of daily life and observing daily life and seeing people just go about their days and for me this dog of ours named after our old neighborhood in north london of camden and uh she is she is incapable of holding a grudge or of being angry uh, or of plotting malice and plotting <laughs> against us. Unlike most cats, like this dog is only <laughs> in the present moment. And she is, she could be on her worst behavior. And then 20 seconds later, we could be so angry, so irritated. She's just barked at a small child and we're so embarrassed. And then she looks at us and she's like, what's up? What are you going to do next? Like, I forgot about it. You should forget about it too. And she has given us this perspective that I think is really, really healthy for definitely for my partner and me, but I think for humans in general, which is probably why dogs are, you know, the dog culture is so real, but she is incapable of not being in the present moment. And there is something about that, that I have found that has started to shift things within me and that that transition is giving me hope and i think people i know people say this about young kids as well like there's there's nothing fake about them like there's nothing fake about animals they are incapable of pretenses or putting on performances or trying to convince themselves or other people that they are anything other than what they are and there's something so real about that that is, um, I think about it all the time, in part because the reason I think about it is in my face all the time and has so much energy and she needs to go outside. 
on a regular basis. And she's like the, I don't know, it, it has really shifted my perspective in a way that is, um, I don't know. I don't know if this has caused me hope, but it's definitely given me perspective, but it feels hopeful in some way, which is why I'm mentioning it. I don't know exactly how it relates, but, but yeah, it does. It does. And I mean, we are, we are the same brother. We need to be outside. We need to let shit go. We, we need, need to, to play. Yeah. Yeah. We need to play. So be more, be more dog, less cat. We just lost all of our cat fan <laughs> listeners. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I love, I love the cats too. Uh, yeah. I think we they, can I learn think, from I, them I, as I well. Think, yeah, exactly. Exactly. They also love, uh, love being outdoors and not, you know, no airs and graces around our human behaviors. But yeah. Adam, and thank they, you so much. My pleasure. We've got to, we've thank got you to guys. This was fun and therapeutic. It's been so great. Yeah, thank you. Um, loved it. I would say to people, yeah, to definitely check out the uh, Reframe the Day book. And also you have a, a newsletter, Reframe Your Inbox. So definitely yes, check Yes, thank you for those out. plugs. And if people want to read more of what we've talked about, we've referenced a bunch of books and articles and things. Uh, my website is adaml.blog adaml.blog the newsletter and all of the stories are linked there thank you very much until next time thank you guys hope thank you i'm for it love that one as well um adam is someone who i've worked with quite a lot and he has got to a really interesting place in his life right now um at the top i guess he talks about the role and power of the powerful, of the CEOs, of the masters of the universe and what power does to people. Um, I also like the fact that he comes back to the fact that people are good um, if they're allowed to be, but the systems around us, the systems around them are not supportive or conducive to us being decent human beings a lot of the time. Yeah, that's actually something that I touched on when we were uh, talking with Robbie about this idea that uh, evil isn't born in us, it's just iterated through like games and games ultimately are kind of how we as humans uh, deliver on our agency. But yeah, Adam was just very interesting. I didn't mind almost going so long on the doing rather than the being because there was so much insight to be drawn from so many of those stories in the corridors of power. However, for me, even with all of that, when we kind of got to talking about the cli-fi uh, and the books and Memento Mori even I just really felt that there was a part of him that was so cerebral and then it kind of really humanised him and it's and I think it tapered towards the end of the conversation where it really felt like just a group of friends chatting Yeah, I mean Adam's backstory is fascinating one he was really rushing around doing, doing a lot of doing and Capitol Hill and then corporate life Davos and so on but like yeah, he, he has grounded and he is definitely being and that's coming through a lot more in his ideas and his work and it's yeah, it's really cool. Um on that Memento Mori piece, um he talks about obviously we have Memento Mori as being well, you can tell me what it means exactly in a second, but talking about death and rather than that being a macabre sort of depressing thing, just how that that really helps him can help us all to be more present and be grateful for every day that we're alive um i like the phrase i don't know if he used this or where i've got this one from but if we're going to die we might as well live mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that reminder yeah memento been remember 
and more even death it's basically yeah remember death always i suppose it's a great way to i suppose frame our lives with humility and i think what we discussed i think what i really liked actually was that in that part of the conversation it felt like adam was then interviewing me a little bit and i kind of i, I do know i went a little bit long in that piece talking about decay and how much it speaks to me but as I said, I just really feel that where we're trying to go with these conversations is ultimately to help each other be better at being, be better beings. And that really kind of pulled something from me and something that will definitely stay with me. Oh, here we go again, the ego, me. All about me, isn't it? <laughs> well, actually, to that point, I did say that there is no death. There is only ego death. And so, yeah, let my one die here and now. All right, I'll let you off. Thank you for listening to this episode of Better Beings. We are an independently produced show and your support is what helps us develop and grow. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with friends, family and colleagues and consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Big thanks to our technical producer, Elliot Fisher, and to our researcher and guest-facing producer, Tara Rudd. Please follow us at Better Beings Pod on both Instagram and Twitter for quotes, updates and guest insights and subscribe and follow on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and never miss an episode. Thank you so much for being with us and see you on the next episode.